Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 80. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. Never mind how long it was. Never mind how long it was. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Sometimes life seems hard, like it's stuck when you think it should be smooth. In those painful times, it's good to know there's help. Where the sun don't shine, suppositories. Be anal. Easy and quick, they do the trick. A crack applicator comes in each box. Order yours today and be back to the regular you. Hi, this is Becky. Steve is going to start us off today with another Roger Pond essay. This one is from his book titled, Take the Kids Fishing, They're Better Than Worms. And in this case, the essay title is the same as the book title. Be careful. My wife said as I left the house, your life insurance isn't very good. We'll be careful, all right, I told her. That's what I always say at 4 a.m. I never go hunting or fishing with the idea of doing anything stupid. This morning was different, I guess. We're going in with the flashlights, huh? I asked my son. Where is the trail, anyway? Just follow me, he said. I think we crossed the creek down there somewhere. I pointed my flashlight at the creek and noticed it was a roaring chute of rocks and waterfalls. Russ jumped on a rock in the middle, then across to the other side. I thought back to the days when my son was small and I carried him across creeks on my back. When he got bigger, I inspired him by saying, If you cross right here, I think you can make it. I looked at this natural version of a water slide and wondered if Russ might come back and carry me across. That didn't seem likely, but he was full of encouragement. If you jump to that rock and then this one, I think you can make it, he said. Times like these invoke life's most basic questions. Is it better to jump on a wet rock with a dry boot or a dry rock with a wet boot? What if I miss? How many bones are there in a person's body, anyway? I chose the dry rock with a wet boot and made it. Then we headed up a ridge and around a series of cliffs on a trail made by a family of chipmunks. This boy is trying to kill me, I thought. Nah, he wouldn't do that. I've got his fishing rod. Finally, we got to the river. Here are some corkies and beads and some leaders, Russell said. The yarn is in there, and the weights are in my pack. The bead goes on first, then the corky. I tied up some droppers in this pocket here, he instructed. Well, isn't this nice, I thought. After all these years of Russ borrowing my stuff, now I'm using his rod, his bait, and his fishing gear. He's even tying the knots for me. I remembered when my son first started fishing. He was just big enough to sit on a log and probably didn't jump across creeks any better than I do today. I loaned him a rod and tied on his hooks. I even gave advice on the best places to fish and did most of his casting at first. Now he teaches me how to fish 
and loans me the stuff I didn't even know I needed. Funny how things change. Here, Dad, let me show you how to do that, he said. You've got to make more loops or the knots won't hold. Cast over there in that back eddy. Keep your bait on the bottom and don't move it around so much. Here, give me that. I'll show you how to cast with one of these reels. We're back to Winds of Wyoming, finishing chapter 24 today. Ramsey slouched in the plastic chair, gawking at Tara through the thick glass that separated them. He'd seen the woman upset before, but now she teetered on the edge of a breakdown. One moment she cried, the next she laughed or screamed a string of swear words. He couldn't tell what the hysterics were about, but it had something to do with Nielsen, so he kept talking kept trying to calm her, ignoring the pain she afflicted on his eardrums as he switched the phone from one side of his head to the other. You sure she's not at the ranch? Is her car still there? It was for a while, but now it's gone, Tara sniffed, so I went looking for her. You go to the ranch every day to check it? No, I have my sources. Oh, yeah, her so-called sources. She rubbed at her mascara-smeared eyelids. A diamond he hadn't noticed before sparkled, reflecting the fluorescent lights. She sniffed again. I don't know where she is. He straightened. You do? I went there today, and I was threatened, her voice rose. Threatened by my third grade teacher, an old woman who treats me like trash every time I see her. I hate her. A sob rippled her lips. She tried to shoot my my butterflies. Tara slapped a hand across her cleavage and dropped her chin to her chest. Tears dripped onto the fingerprint smudged ledge. Where is this old lady? Tara lifted her streaked face. She has a house not far from Copperville, but she wouldn't let me go inside. Nielsen living with a helpless senior citizen. Finally, some good news. Did you see Nielsen's car there? She wiped stringy hair from her wet face. No, but she has to be there. A sob convulsed her chest. She's friends with Dimple. I saw them talking at church, and one of my nurse friends said they left the hospital together. Dimple? Tara rolled her eyes. Weird name. Weird woman. What's the last name? He checked the phone book. Couldn't be anybody else in that hick town with a name like that. Dimple Forbes. Why do you want to know? I hired a lawyer today who's going to get me out of this hole. When he does, I'll pay Nielsen and her old lady friend a little visit. Oh, Jer, she leaned toward him, fingernail tips against the glass. I thought we were in this together, a team. In what together? She regarded him from beneath arched eyebrows. You and I, we're good together. I have plans. You could join me. She puckered her lips and batted her barely adhered eyelashes. I'll make it worth your while. First time she'd used that line. But he had to admit he was curious. If nothing else, getting close to her would give him an opportunity to slip that rock from her finger. Had to be worth several grand. On the other hand, he was tired of messing with Nielsen. Trina, or whatever her name was, was more his style. Maybe he'd let her keep the ring. But whether he hooked up with her or not, his Pittsburgh woman would suffer the consequences for the misery she'd heaped on him time and time again. Kate reached for the cranberry juice Dimple had just poured for her. Thank you, Dimple. 
Isn't this a gorgeous morning? Not a cloud in the sky. And beautiful flowers blooming all over your backyard. Warm by the sun, nearby sweet peas perfumed the patio. That it is, Dimple said. Now you know why I returned to these mountains. She set the pitcher on the table and sat across from Kate. Are you feeling better this morning? Much better, Kate said. Thanks for making me eat lunch after the Terra incident yesterday. I think it helped me sleep. I don't know how many hours I slept, but I didn't wake up until I heard the birds chirping this morning. I checked on you a couple times, Dimple said, but you didn't stir a muscle. Kate bit into a toasted English muffin spread with real butter and Dimple's homemade choke cherry jelly. This is fabulous jelly, Dimple. If they have choke cherries in Pennsylvania, I never heard of them. But maybe that's because I lived in the city. Choke cherries are mostly seed, Dimple said, and too sour to eat in their natural state. But with plenty of sweetener, they make good jelly and syrup and wine. Years ago, someone dubbed my wine Dimple's Delight, and the name stuck. She slid her chair back. I'll bring you a sample. Kate motioned for her to stay seated. It sounds delicious, but I don't usually have wine with breakfast. Besides, it might interact with my meds in ways you wouldn't appreciate. No sense mentioning her vow to never touch the stuff again. I'll have to take you chokecherry picking later in the summer, Dimple said. Sometimes I go alone, and sometimes I go with women from church. We have a grand old time gabbing and laughing. I would love that, Kate said, if... I know what you're thinking, Dimple waggled a finger at her. If you're still here, if you don't go to jail, if you can walk. I know it's hard not to have a sense of what the future holds, but how about living one day at a time? She reached for a muffin half and began buttering it. There's a scripture that says this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. I learned long ago that my thoughts get out of control when I think too hard about what might or might not happen. Okay, Kate grinned. This is a wonderful day, a fabulous day. I will enjoy every moment, starting with another muffin with lots of jelly. That's my girl, Dimple passed the muffin basket. Would you care to go over to the cemetery with me this morning? I'd love it, Kate said, but will I be able to use my wheelchair? I'd hate to make tread marks on someone's grave. Dimple laughed. That won't happen unless you wander off the path. Tired by the effort it took to roll her chair to the cemetery, Kate parked under a wide tree to catch her breath and rest her arms. She watched Dimple hobble around the grounds. The elderly woman bent low to pick up errant plastic blossoms and reached high to snap off straggly branches. Kate lifted her hair to cool her neck. Would she be as active and gracious as Dimple and Aunt Mary when she was older? Would she have a house and a garden to tend? Or would she spend her latter years in prison? She frowned. She would not think about the future, only about today, this beautiful day God made, and how good it had been to talk with Aunt Mary and Amy yesterday. When her energy returned, she rolled over to Dimple. I'd like to go to the church for a few minutes, if that's okay. Of course, but don't wear yourself out. Kate entered Highway Haven House of God through the side door, which had only a single step to negotiate. Using the railing, she pulled herself upright, then stood on one foot while she rolled the chair up the step. She hopped inside, 
leaning on the wheelchair for support. The first thing she noticed was the collection box at the far end of the room. She winced. Knowing she must have looked like a deer caught in headlights, guilt written all over her face when Dimple saw her standing there. A lot of horrible things had happened since that day, but she was glad she didn't race out of the chapel, and glad she'd met Dimple with a Y, Louise Forbes. The rustic chapel's peaceful atmosphere hadn't diminished. She angled herself onto a front pew with her feet stretched across at her back to the door she'd entered. Enveloped in a shaft of sunshine and the smell of warm wood, she felt wrapped in love, cocooned by her Savior's goodness. Lord, she whispered, I thought I had my life under control when I walked in here a few weeks ago. But only moments later, I blew it again. And things went downhill from there. I don't want to dwell on the past or the future, because I'm loving this moment. Thank you for allowing me to enjoy another day on the outside. But I'm terrified of returning to prison. Something inside me says if I return, I'll never leave. That may not be true, but if nothing else, it would break Aunt Mary's heart. Help me trust that you have a purpose for my life and believe you'll make this craziness turn out for good. And please don't let Ramsay harm Dimple. If he comes for me, when he comes for me, I won't be able to protect her. So you'll have to do it. Kate remembered the service she'd attended at Highway Haven and how beautiful the congregation sounded while singing How Great Thou Art. She began to sing the song, grateful to be alone in the chapel. She was starting the chorus when a male voice joined from behind her back. Kate stopped singing and turned to see Pastor Chuck and his wife Wanda walk in the side door. He motioned for Kate to continue. Together, the three of them sang to the ceiling and beyond. The song resonated between the rafters until they sang the final, How Great Thou Art, and Chuck said, Amen. Wanda sat on the other end of the pew, her arms full of banners. You're looking better than when we last saw you, Kate. How are you feeling? The kind couple had visited Kate twice in the hospital. She appreciated Wanda's gracious spirit and enjoyed her husband's dry humor. Today is a good day. I slept a lot yesterday, which seemed to help. I haven't had to take a pain pill today. Good for you, but don't try to be superwoman. Take the pills when you need them. My mother, who was a nurse, always said we relax when the pain diminishes, and that aids the healing. She laid her arm across the pew back. I'm sorry we interrupted your private moment. We came to decorate the chapel for the fourth. Chuck, who stood nearby, looked from Kate to Wanda. I'm not sorry. Chuck, you don't mean that. Wanda frowned at her husband. Haven't you been stewing about how we need to find a soprano for the fourth? Yes, but what does... Oh, she gave Kate an appraising glance. I see what you mean. Kate eyed the two of them. Mind telling me what you're talking about? Sorry, Wanda patted her good leg. You probably saw Wendy singing in the worship team when you visited. She'll be out of town on parade weekend, so we're looking for a replacement. Parade? Every 4th of July, Copperville hosts an old-fashioned Independence Day celebration. We have a parade in the morning, games, contests, and races in the afternoon, and fireworks at night. People come from all over the county, and everyone has a great time. Most of the local businesses and community groups enter floats, Chuck said. He rested his elbow on the altar. Some of them are quite exotic. 
but ours will be simple this year, mainly featuring our church band. But we need another vocalist, Wanda smiled. You have a beautiful voice, Kate. Would you consider singing with the band? It would only be for the fourth, that's all. I'm honored you asked, Kate said, but I doubt I'll be out of my wheelchair by then or off. She hated to mention her house arrest, even to a pastor and his wife. We'll nail a chair to the truck bed. Chuck wielded an invisible hammer. You can sit the whole way. Which won't be far, Wanda laughed. If you've driven Copperville's main drag, you know it's short. Several years ago, the committee decided to have the parade inch from one end of town to the other, and then turn around and go the opposite way. It's humorous, but fun to see both sides of the floats. With a grin, Chuck added, Plus, the kids get to chase another round of candy in the street. The couple looked at Kate with such expectation she almost agreed to sing, but she knew she couldn't commit without permission from the sheriff's department. Can I let you know later? I should talk with my doctor before I give you an answer. Yes, but please call me as soon as possible, Wanda stood. Our only practice is scheduled for a week from Thursday. We'd love to have you join us. Only practice? Is that a problem? I hate to admit it, but Kate's neck and then her face grew warm. I don't know many religious songs. But you probably know patriotic songs, Chuck said, like America the Beautiful, God Bless America, The Star-Spangled Banner. I do, but that's the kind of songs we'll be singing, Wanda said. Maybe this land is your land in another one or two. We sang those in my school choir, Kate said, and the juvenile correctional facility choir, and the jail choir, and the prison choir. Kate called her doctor and Dimple called Sheriff Gilmer. Their permission cleared the way for her to join the band practice, sing on the parade float, and attend the July 4th festivities. Though Dimple acted as if Kate had been asked to perform for the president, she had a feeling she'd be the Pennsylvania fool on display, the talk of the town. About the time the WP's cash was stolen, they'd say, Kate Nielsen dropped out of sight. Now she's back, trying to look religious by singing on a church float. Can you believe the nerve? They wouldn't understand, as usual, and Ramsey and Tara might be there, the very people she was hiding from. Yet a voice deep within seemed to say, Go ahead, Kate, show up, and watch me work. We're in Treasure Island. Chapter 30, and I'll start with the last little bit of 29. He himself slept peacefully and snored aloud, yet my heart was sore for him, wicked as he was, to think on the dark perils that environed and the shameful gibbet that awaited him. Chapter 30, On Parole I was wakened. Indeed, we were all wakened for I could see even the sentinel shake himself together from where he had fallen against the doorpost by a clear, hearty voice hailing us from the margin of the wood. Blockhouse, ahoy! it cried. Here's the doctor! And the doctor it was, although I was glad to hear the sound, yet my gladness was not without admixture. I remembered with confusion my insubordinate and stealthy conduct 
and when I saw where it had brought me among what companions, and surrounded by what dangers, I felt ashamed to look him in the face. He must have risen in the dark, for the day had hardly come, and when I ran to a loophole and looked out, I saw him standing, like silver once before, up to the mid-leg in creeping vapor. "'You, doctor, top of the morning to you, sir,' cried Silver, broad awake and beaming with good nature in a moment. "'Bright and early, to be sure. And it's the early bird, as the saying goes, that gets the rations. George, shake up your timbers, son, and help Dr. Livesey over the ship's side. All a-doing well. Your patience was all well and merry.' So he pattered on standing on the hilltop with his crutch under his elbow and one hand upon the side of the log house, quite the old John in voice, manner, and expression. We've quite a surprise for you too, sir, he continued. We've a little stranger here, he, he, a new boarder and lodger, sir, and looking fit and taut as a fiddle. Slept like a supercargo, he did, right alongside of John, Stem to stem we was, all night. Dr. Livesey was by this time across the stockade and pretty near the cook, and I could hear the alteration in his voice as he said, Not Jim. The very same Jim as ever was, says Silver. The doctor stopped outright, although he did not speak, and it was some seconds before he seemed able to move on. Well, well, he said at last, duty first and pleasure afterwards, as you might have said yourself, Silver. Let us overhaul these patients of yours. A moment afterwards, he had entered the blockhouse and with one grim nod to me, proceeded with his work among the sick. He seemed under no apprehension, though he must have known that his life among these treacherous demons depended on a hair and he rattled on to his patience as if he were paying an ordinary professional visit in a quiet English family. His manner, I suppose, reacted on the men, for they behaved to him as if nothing had occurred, as if he were still ship's doctor, and they still faithful hands before the mast. "'You're doing well, my friend,' he said to the fellow with the bandaged head, "'and if ever any person had a close shave, it was you.' Your head must be as hard as iron. Well, George, how goes it? You're a pretty color, certainly. Why, your liver, man, is upside down. Did you take that medicine? Did he take that medicine, men? Aye, aye, sir, he took it, sure enough, returned Morgan. Because, you see, since I am mutineer's doctor, or prison doctor, as I prefer to call it, says Dr. Livesey in his pleasantest way, I make it a point of honor not to lose a man for King George, God bless him, and the gallows. The rogues looked at each other, but swallowed the home thrust in silence. Dick don't feel well, sir, said one. Don't he, replied the doctor. Well, step up here, Dick, and let me see you tongue. No, I should be surprised if he did. The man's tongue is fit to frighten the French. Another fever. Ah, there, said Morgan. That comed of spoiling Bibles. That comed, as you call it, of being errant jackasses, retorted the doctor. 
and not having sense enough to know honest air from poison, and the dry land from a vile, pestiferous slough. I think it most probable, though of course it's only an opinion, that you'll all have the deuce to pay before you get that malaria out of your systems. Camp in a bog, would you? Silver, I'm surprised at you. You're less of a fool than many. Take you all round but you don't appear to me to have the rudiments of a notion of the rules of health. Well, he added, after he had dosed them round and they had taken his prescriptions, with really laughable humility and more like charity schoolchildren than blood-guilty mutineers and pirates, well, that's done for today. And now I should wish to have a talk with that boy, please. And he nodded his head in my direction carelessly. George Mary was at the door, spitting and sputtering over some bad-tasted medicine. But at the first word of the doctor's proposal, he swung round with a deep flush and cried, No! and swore. Silver struck the barrel with his open hand. Silence! he roared, and looked about him positively like a lion. Doctor, he went on, in his usual tones, I was a-thinking of that. Knowing as how you had a fancy for the boy, we're all humbly grateful for your kindness and, as you see, puts faith in you and takes the drugs down like that much grog. And I take it I've found a way as'll suit all. Hawkins, will you give me your word of honor as a young gentleman? For a young gentleman you are, although poor born. Your word of honor not to slip your cable? I readily gave the pledge required. Then, doctor, said Silver, you just step outside of that stockade, and once you're there, I'll bring the boy down on the inside, and I reckon you can yarn through the spars. Good day to you, sir, and all our duties to the squire and Captain Smollett. The explosion of disapproval, which nothing but Silver's black looks had restrained, broke out immediately the doctor had left the house. Silver was roundly accused of playing double, of trying to make a separate peace for himself, of sacrificing the interests of his accomplices and victims, and, in one word, of the identical exact thing that he was doing. It seemed to me so obvious in this case that I could not imagine how he was to turn their anger. But he was twice the man the rest were, and his last night's victory had given him a huge preponderance on their minds. He called them all the fools and dolts you can imagine, said it was necessary I should talk to the doctor, fluttered the chart in their faces, asked them if they could afford to break the treaty the very day they were bound to treasure hunting. No, by thunder, he cried, it's us must break the treaty when the time comes. And till then, I'll gammon that doctor if I have to aisle his boots with brandy. And then he bade them get the fire lit and stalked out upon his crutch with his hand on my shoulder, leaving them in a disarray, and silenced by his volubility rather than convinced. Slow, lad, slow, he said. They might round upon us in a twinkle of an eye if we were seen to hurry. Very deliberately, then, did we advance across the sand to where the doctor awaited us on the other side of the stockade, and as soon as we were within easy speaking distance, Silver stopped. You'll make a note of this here also, doctor, says he, 
and the boy'll tell you how I saved his life, and were deposed for it too, and you may lay to that. Doctor, when a man's steering as near the wind as me, playing duck farthing with the last breath in his body, like you wouldn't think it too much, mayhap, to give him one good word. You'll please bear in mind it's not my life only now. It's that boy's into the bargain. And you'll speak me fair, doctor, and give me a bit of hope to go on for the sake of mercy. Silver was a changed man once he was out there and had his back to his friends in the blockhouse. His cheeks seemed to have fallen in. His voice trembled. Never was a soul more dead in earnest. Why, John, you're not afraid? asked Dr. Livesey. Doctor, I'm no coward. No, not I. Not so much. And he snapped his fingers. If I was, I wouldn't say it, but I'll own up fairly. I've the shakes upon me for the gallows. You're a good man and a true. I never seen a better man. And you'll not forget what I done good, not any more than you'll forget the bad, I know. And I step aside, see here, and leave you and Jim alone. And you'll put that down for me too, for it's a long stretch, is that? So saying, he stepped back a little way, till he was out of earshot, and there sat down upon a tree stump and began to whistle, spinning round now and again upon his seat, so as to command a sight, sometimes of me and the doctor, and sometimes of his unruly ruffians, as they went to and fro in the sand, between the fire, which they were busy rekindling, and the house from which they brought forth pork and bread to make the breakfast. So, Jim, said the doctor, sadly, here you are. As you have brewed, so shall you drink, my boy. Heaven knows I cannot find it in my heart to blame you, but this much I will say, be it kind or unkind. When Captain Smollett was well, you dared not have gone off, and when he was ill and couldn't help it, by George, it was downright cowardly. I will own that I here began to weep. Doctor, I said, you might spare me. I have blamed myself enough. My life's forfeit anyway, and I should have been dead by now if Silver hadn't stood for me. And, doctor, believe this, I can die, and I dare say I deserve it. But what I fear is torture. If they come to torture me, Jim, the doctor interrupted, and his voice was quite changed. Jim, I can't have this. Whip over and we'll run for it. Doctor, said I, I passed my word. I know, I know, he cried. We can't help that, Jim, now. I'll take it on my shoulders. Holus, bolus, blame and shame, my boy. But stay here, I cannot let you. Jump, one jump and you're out, and we'll run for it like antelopes. No, I replied. You know right well you wouldn't do the thing yourself. Neither you, nor squire, nor captain. And no more will I. Silver trusted me. I passed my word, and back I go. But doctor, you did not let me finish. If they come to torture me, I might let slip a word of where the ship is. For I got the ship, part by luck and part by risking, and she lies in North Inlet, on the southern beach, and just below high water. At half-tide she must be high and dry. The ship! exclaimed the doctor. Rapidly I described to him my adventures, and he heard me out in silence. There is a kind of fate in this, he observed when I had done. Every step, 
It's you that saves our lives. And do you suppose by any chance that we are going to let you lose yours? That would be a poor return, my boy. You found out the plot. You found Ben Gunn. The best deed that ever you did, or will do, though you live to ninety. Oh, by Jupiter, and talking of Ben Gunn. Why, this is the mischief in person. Silver, he cried. Silver! I'll give you a piece of advice, he continued, as the cook drew near again. Don't you be in any great hurry after that treasure. Why, sir, I do my impossible, which that ain't, said Silver. I can only, asking your pardon, save my life and the boys by seeking for that treasure, and you may lay to that. Well, Silver, replied the doctor, if that is so, I'll go one step further. Look out for squalls when you find it. Sir, said Silver, as between and man, that's too much and too little. What you're after, why you left the blockhouse, why you've given me that there chart, I don't know now, do I? And yet I done your bidding with my eyes shut and never a word of hope. But no, this here's too much. If you won't tell me what you mean plain out, just say so, and I'll leave the helm. No, said the doctor, musingly. I've no right to say more. It's not my secret, you see, Silver, or I give you my word, I tell it you. But I'll go as far with you as I dare go, and a step beyond, for I'll have my wigs sorted by the captain, or I'm mistaken. And first, I'll give you a bit of hope. Silver, if we both get alive out of this wolf trap, I'll do my best to save you, short of perjury. Silver's face was radiant. You couldn't say more, I'm sure, sir. Not if you was my mother, he cried. Well, that's my first concession, added the doctor. My second is a piece of advice. Keep the boy close beside you. And when you need help, hello. I'm off to seek it for you, and that itself will show you if I speak at random. Goodbye, Jim. And Dr. Livesey shook hands with me through the stockade, nodded to Silver, and set off at a brisk pace into the wood. I'll be reading a poem by Tina Frederick from a book titled An Eclectic Collage, which is a collection of creative works by a group of women called the Pixie Chicks. They have a writing group together. Tina has been writing poems since she was 10 years old, and she's even had one recorded by a local heavy metal group. She has four children and five grandchildren, and although she swore she would never go to church, she's active in a church. Her poem is titled, Giving In to God. I fell to my knees and my heart cried out, all right, all right, I give. With so much pain and hurt inside, I screamed out, You win. I can't do this on my own. I just can't fix it, God. Take this burden off my heart so I won't feel this pain again. My way only made it worse and sorrow I can't bear. I give it to you. Do as you wish. My life is yours to command. Take this pain away from me and let my poor heart breathe. Whatever you want, whatever you wish, my life is in your hands. 
I fell down sobbing all the tears I'd held back for so long. Then I felt his arms around me and felt the spirit near. He whispered, Precious child, I've loved you through it all. As he held me close, I poured out all the anger, pain, and fear. I lay there and let him hold me, kept in his embrace, feeling a sense of happiness I had never felt before. My anger became forgiveness. My sorrow turned to hope. He whispered, This is just the start. For you, I have much more. It's time for a couple fun poems by Eugene Shea. This one is called Youthful Management. We are missing the boat on management, be it corporate or civil or any you name. The wisdom of youth is being squandered while us old fogies continue the same. From the time-worn ruts of the ancients, experience is the only solution we bring. While youth and all its inherent wisdom can offer an answer for everything. Turn over the reins to the teenagers who have not suffered the bruises of years. Let the haggard be led by the naive, for all of them know more than their peers. Do you think I am just pulling your leg? That this is another of my dumb jokes? Well, ask the next teenager you meet if he doesn't know more than his folks. (laughs) And this one... Uh, has a lot to do with summer, (laughs) called overgrowth. Tonight I lay me down to sleep, to my bed of briars I carefully creep. This day is done, its chance has gone, but tomorrow brings a fresh new dawn. I will arise and with renewed hope through the jungle I'll carefully grope. With raised machete I'll part the way and frighten the carnivores away. But I know full well Ere the setting sun, I shall return to where this day begun. Before I allow more days to dawn, I've got to mow that awful lawn. And that's going to finish. I really should go mow the lawn. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckylyles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckylyles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.